Hi, everyone. This is John Christensen with a brand new episode of the Wealth Confidant podcast. I'm passionate about improving other people's lives, and one of my favorite themes to talk about on the show is giving. My life personally has been transformed through starting my own journey of generosity and how it's caused me to examine my relationship to money, to control, and how also it has generated increasing levels of joy and contentment. I hope to inspire others to get on their own journey and learn one of the secrets to living fully that comes from giving. One common misconception around generosity is that you have to have abundant financial resources in order to affect change. But philanthropy can go well beyond just writing checks. We all have time, talent, and experience we can contribute to make the world a better place. When I met today's guest, Amitab Shah, in New York, I was there to speak at the Harvard Club as a part of my book tour. But I was struck by his generous spirit and wanted to know more about what made him tick and the passion he has for impacting the world in significant ways. Amitab completed his MBA at Yale and passed up a Wall Street offer in order to devote his time to helping others. He believes that young people have the power and determination it takes to make a positive impact. Amitab himself was just 23 years old when he founded his organization, which is called Yuva Unstoppable. Yuva, meaning youth, Youth Unstoppable, mobilizes volunteers to help underprivileged children across India. One of the ways they do this is by providing necessities like water, bathrooms, and technology to some of India's poorest public schools. All of these upgrades dramatically improve the lives of children and increase their access to education. You can visit yuvaunstoppable.org for more information about Amitabh's work. During our conversation, we also get into the differences in the generosity culture between India and the United States, a really interesting part of our conversation. Also, how to give beyond writing checks, where Amitabh's big-hearted nature came from, and something that matters to both of us and to many of you, the importance of gratitude. Let's dive in. Hey, Amitab, welcome to the Wealth Confidant podcast. Thank you for having me, John. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, this is really fun for me. Having met you in New York several months ago, and we've had another lovely conversation on the phone just recently to get caught up again. Would you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you're doing with this really interesting organization that you created called Yuva Unstoppable? Would you tell everybody about that? Absolutely. So I was in India till I was 15 and there would be children on the streets begging with no clothes off. There would be lots of homeless people on every other street that you would see. But growing up, seeing this all day long, you just become numb to it. So for my junior and senior of high school, I was an exchange student in Talladega, Alabama, which is a fantastic place. There's a lot more to it than just the speedway. And the movie, Thardega Nights. So I had a fantastic time living with a wonderful host family there. And while I was there, I started volunteering at, you know, Big Brother, Big Sister, Boys and Girls Club, Salvation Army, Soup Kitchen. I was exposed to this whole new world. And in India, people volunteer with money, not the time so much. On one of my trips back to India, 
I started seeing that the child who's outside the car and who's knocking on the window asking for food or money and who has no clothes, while the child who's sitting next to me, my nephew, was wearing Tommy Hilfiger clothes. And that's probably only because they're born in a different place. And I started wondering, is there someone to say, I love you? Where does he bathe? Where does he go to use the loo? Does he go to a school? So this newfound compassion came to me definitely because I had started volunteering while I was in Alabama. So the seeds were put in my mind right in my high school years because I would come home every summer to India. And I went to University of Alabama for my bachelor's. And then I was working in Atlanta right after experiencing Roll Tide and seeing what a great football team Alabama is. In Atlanta, I was working for a company called Hewitt Associates in Programming. And there I had made three best friends, John, Vodka, Tequila, and Margarita. And I was spending way too much of my time on them. And my parents said, hey, man, you need to really find the purpose in your life. Maybe you should go and do your MBA and you'll figure out what you're supposed to do. I got a full right to go to Texas A&M for my MBA. So I quit my job in Atlanta with Hewitt Associates and decided to go to India for a month where I was going to play tennis, go to the gym, party, and then go back to Texas. And like I said, when I came here, I saw all these incredible opportunities all around me where I felt I could make a difference. And especially the elderly in India are the most neglected and the retirement communities are places where people can get clean water, a clean bed, food, and some medicine for $10 a month. And it's the poorest of poor who are above 70 go there because they have no one else who's there to take care of them. Mm -hmm. And I asked a couple of my friends to join me there and just volunteer. And two became 20, 20 became 50 in less than a week. And I was very clear that just like in the US, everybody here wanted a platform where they could go and volunteer, maybe for two hours a week. And I figured you could be a doctor, a lawyer, a housewife, a college student, an author, an incredibly successful wealth manager, or the prime minister, you could find at least two hours to go and volunteer and spend time with children. So I remember talking to my dad, the dad, I'm not going back to the US, I'm going to start this volunteer movement. And it's called Yuva Unstoppable, which means the unstoppable youth. And India has got 770 million people below the age of 35. And we mobilized about 150,000 volunteers all over the country who were giving their time and talent. I decided to decline my offer at Texas A&M. I did, although, John, a couple of years after starting Yuva, I did go to Yale for my MBA because that was a promise who I made to my parents because my brother had gone to Harvard Business School and they were like, well, you know, your brother's going to ride a Ferrari and you're going to have a bike and you're going <laughs> to be a poor social worker and you know, no one's going to want to marry you. I'm married to Mrs. India now. That's a whole different story. <laughs> but, uh, but the bottom line is I declined a Wall Street offer right after Yale in 2008 and came back to work on the real streets with Yuva Unstoppable and hence the volunteer movement and hence we started upgrading bathrooms, water and technology in schools. And there's no looking back, my friend. In a lot of the schools in India for about 400 children, there is just one bathroom and it will not be clean at all. The dishwashing, drinking, and the hand-washing areas would just be a one faucet of water, so it's extremely unhygienic. A lot of kids fall sick. They will not drink water because if they drink water, they will use the loo. If they use the loo, they fall sick. So they fall in this vicious circle. The attendance 
goes down and hence the learning outcomes go down as well. So we basically upgrade the poorest of poor public schools, which are different than the public school I went to in Alabama, Talladega High School. So we upgrade them to UNICEF levels, where for every 40 kids, we'll have a faucet of water. For every 40 kids, we'll have a separate bathroom, separate bathrooms for boys and girls, separate the dishwashing rink and the hand washing areas. And we have put in Google Smart Classrooms in the schools so that children learn through technology. Just how we learned about George Washington and trigonometry in a textbook, the entire curriculum is turned into animation and audiovisuals. So the learning outcomes, especially in STEM, goes up as well. And we have now done about 1,000 schools and 500,000 children across 40 cities in uh, 14 states. And it's a blast. That is just a, a massive statistic of the number of, of communities and children that you've helped. Yeah. When we met in New York at the Harvard Club and you were sharing with me this idea that generosity and philanthropy in India is different than it is in the United States. Could you unpack that a little bit for everybody so they understand that? Oh, that's a great question, John. See, I give a lot of talks all over the U.S. And in any room, I ask a question that how many of you here volunteered when you were in first grade or second grade or, you know, in your junior high? And 100% of the people raised their hands. Because the seed of kindness of going to soup kitchen or maybe boys and girls club or the Salvation Army or volunteering, every single person does it. John, did you volunteer when you were in junior high I, or high school? I did. That is the main distinction that from a young age, people in the U.S. volunteer and give their time. And I truly believe that whatever you do for a long period of time, it becomes a habit. And that's why I think that compassion and kindness has become a habit in most Americans. While in India, giving your time is be it going at old age homes or orphanages or going to the inner city schools, that doesn't happen that often, especially in the urban parts of the country, especially in high school. That just hasn't been happening much at all. People volunteer maybe with some fundraisers or their time with fundraisers or raising money from their friends and family when they're younger, when they're in high school. But giving your time doesn't happen that much. So I think that is the main difference. Although I must say recently, in the last five years or so, there's a lot more opportunity where in high school, your junior and senior year in India, you have to mandatorily volunteer for 30 hours and you get class credit for doing it which I think is fantastic, but that still happens in very elite schools. So I think giving your time is what we need a lot more of in India. And that's exactly what we were doing with Yuan Stoppable. We would ask children from junior high all the way to 18 years of age to simply give two hours a week of their time. And they could teach maths, English, dance, music, science to the kids in the inner cities. And we saw IIM Ahmedabad, which is the Harvard of India, did a case study and found out that people who are volunteering for two hours a week for about a year, their confidence went up by 50% and their integrity and ethics went up by 40%. It benefits the volunteer a lot more, I truly believe, 
than any beneficiary. The volunteer himself is a beneficiary. And I think this is something that America should be proud of, of the culture of giving time. John, where did you volunteer, if you don't mind me asking you? I was thinking about this. I was in, if you can believe this, I was on this unicycle team, which is kind of a funny thing to to do in junior high. But a buddy of mine rode a unicycle and I really wanted a unicycle with him. And so I taught myself how to do it in my garage painstakingly for a while. And then we would dress up as clowns and do this thing at these nursing homes for older people just as a way to entertain them. So I was kind of, when you were telling that story, I was sitting there going, oh my word, I could, you know, and that's almost embarrassing to say, but, and I, there's no pictures coming out for this, by the way, there's zero pictures coming out. For this. But nonetheless, yeah, that was a part of my younger years. And I can remember the satisfaction of of those older people and, and having, you know, some time to enjoy that with us. And so that, that is a really cool thing. So uh, thanks for bringing that, that memory up for me. <laughs> Don't you think you're doing some of that even now? Well, uh, yeah, no, unicyc- no unicycling right now, <laughs> zero, but yeah, I, I believe that you and I have talked about this a little bit, but I do believe in my own life that there's so much that I want to give, not only of my time, but of my, talent of my influence. Influence is another one that is, as you get older and you have more experience and wisdom, I have some real influence, I believe that I can share and then money. And then when you wrap those things together, but even just this, what I'm trying to do, you know, with you and the things you and I have talked about is trying to help people to connect their life to meaning and purpose. And, and a lot of that is, is in my own way, trying to inspire people to do this. So exactly. Yes. And, and I know that it brings tremendous joy and fulfillment in my own life. And I hear you saying the same thing. That's what you're seeing. And of course, that's what you're doing in your life. So I think we're, we're both preaching to the choir right here. <laughs> yes. But you were giving us, you know, a lot of great information about You've Unstoppable, about the schools and the, the things you had changed to this point. There was a certain number of schools you've fixed and, and improved. And then what's the goal for the organization? And what's the vision really for this organization? If we were five or 10 years down the road, what, what would you hope you have accomplished in India? Absolutely. John and I would like to quickly share a small story, which I think plays beautifully into the question you asked. In India, for about 300 girls, there is just one or two bathrooms in the schools. The dishwashing, drinking, hand-washing area would probably just have two faucets of water. A lot of schools don't have benches, as I was telling you. Kids get a back problem growing up and forget having a Google Smart Classroom. They would just paint the wall black and write on it with a chalk. So just to equal the playing field, you know, because these kids are malnourished. They've got massive problems in health. The attendance goes down because they will not drink enough water. They drink water. They would use the bathrooms. The bathrooms are just hell on earth, to say the least. So it, it's difficult to live a meaningful life without a clean bathroom and clean water, no matter who you are. I very, very clearly remember meeting this little girl, Priya. And me and my wife had gone to visit one of the schools in Mumbai. And she was, I think, about seven, eight years old. This was one of the schools where we had upgraded the infrastructure. And she comes up to us and is like, hey, mister, come here. Almost kind of, you know, ordering me to go towards her. And I'm like, yes. And she's like, you bend a little bit so I can talk to you properly. So I bend down a little bit. And she's like, no, bend down a little more. I was like, yes, ma'am. And I bend down a little more. 
and Priya, all of her seven years old, I think her father drives a rickshaw, makes probably like $5 a day. She yells in my ear, thank you. <laughs> and I said, why do you say that, sweetheart? And she's like, well, you are, you are a grown up, you know, you're an adult. You should know why I'm saying that. I was like, no, please tell me. And she's like, with a wink and a smile, she's like, because now I can pee twice a day. And I think there were just two bathrooms for 300 children there. And now there's nine. It's small stories like these, you know, which keep inspiring us and keep motivating us. There's 1.3 million schools in India. More than 50% of them, John, do not have separate bathrooms for the girls. More than 62% because of lack of proper water and plumbing are not functioning. This leads to tremendous issues, as you can tell. The biggest eye-opener for me was when all these volunteers, we mobilized 150,000 volunteers, and we had volunteers from Coca-Cola, from Deloitte, from KPMG, who were giving their time, and a lot of housewives, doctors, lawyers, college students, and they would come up to me and say, Amitabh, it's okay that we are you know, teaching them math, science, English for two hours a week, but when we go there, even we have to hold our pee. We can't drink water. Imagine what's happening to these little kids, mm. you know, from six years to 14, holding it for eight hours every day. We need to do something about it. So we decided to upgrade the schools to UNICEF standards, that for every 40 kids would have a bathroom. For every 50 kids would have a faucet of water. Separated the dishwashing, drinking, and the hand washing areas. Instantly, the attendance and the health went up. KPMG started helping us with our taxes and finances and strategies. Deloitte came on board to help us with our project management and internal process reviews. And we scaled it up with high net worth individuals. People donated from two schools to three schools to five schools to a hundred schools. And now we have done about a thousand schools as we speak today in the last four years. That's amazing, by the way. A thousand you. schools you've changed in the way that you've described. Yes with proper sanitation, water, and technology so that the STEM learnings happens and their learning outcomes go up. And the vision is 10,000 schools. We've touched half a million kids. The vision is in the next five years to scale to 5 million children and 10,000 schools. I feel extremely grateful and positive that we'll touch the mark. And how much does it cost to rehab a school, roughly speaking, to do the kinds of things. So if somebody said, I want to get involved, this is really interesting to me. I want to contribute or help. Can you give people a sense of what that costs to kind of rehab a school and do what you said? Absolutely. And you'd love people to give their, their time, talent, or treasure. So someone could just come and say that could help us with strategy. You know, how do we become more efficient in terms of our supply chain? Someone came and said that, you know, I'm fantastic in branding. You know, I can help you with your marketing. Someone like IBM came and said that, you know, I can help you with your social media strategy. Someone can say, I would like to volunteer once a month. And through Skype, someone could be an accountant in the U.S. and we could give you three kids who are absolutely brilliant, getting more than, you know, 90% and want to go into accounting. Someone could want to become a doctor and they could mentor them by giving their time once a month. Or it's just $10,000 to transform lives of about 300 children, three to 400 children who are in one school. And every year, there'll be 100 more children who come to that school. And once you upgrade it, we ensure that we do enough behavioral training and sustainability training so that the school stay that way for five years. 
So in a sense, you're helping close to 800 to 1,000 kids to get more hope, more dignity, and come on a level playing ground where they could become a doctor, a lawyer, businessman, something special for as little as $10,000 for one school. Wow. Wow. That's that's just kind of amazing, really, to think the leverage that's there. Where did this come from, this value system that you have, this this all these things that you're doing in your life? I think, and this is going to probably make all your listeners uh, chuckle, but it, I think it comes from down south. It comes from Alabama, Roll Tide, because I lived in India until I was 15. And for my junior and senior year of high school, I went to Talladega, Alabama. But I went from a city of 6 million to, I think, uh, when I had gone there, I think maybe it was 60,000 at that time. So there was a huge difference. But like I said, you know, I saw the people were so kind there, you know, and I was going to the first Baptist church with my host family. I was an exchange student and I saw everyone at the church was giving their time in one way or the other, either by feeding the hungry or helping the homeless, building homes for them, and all kinds of different volunteer activities. Now, when I was in India till I was 15, I had seen children on the streets naked begging. I had seen homeless people live under bridges almost every other street. But I had seen people, uh, you know, with no clothes. I had seen people with all kinds of deformities walking on the streets. I had seen drug addicts on the streets. But to be honest, I had become numb to it. Because I saw it from morning to night and it did not move me. But after volunteering in in high school and at University of Alabama, when I went back on one of my trips when I was about 22 years old, I saw, my God, that kid who's knocking on the window of my car on the crossroads begging for money doesn't have clothes on. While the kid who's sitting next to me, my nephew, he's got a Snickers bar in his hand. He's wearing Nike shoes. He's clean. He's loved all day long. He's probably kissed at least 50 times a day by his parents and all of us. He's, I mean, spoiled, spoiled, spoiled. It made me feel that I wonder what about the kid right outside the window? Does he get, so is there someone to kiss him? Well, how often does he bathe? Because I could clearly see There was stuff coming out of his nose. His fingers were messy. His hair was messy. The clothes that he was wearing were torn, probably didn't, you know, wash them for for ages. First time, does he have a school to go to? Does he have a teacher? Does he have someone who says, I love you? What about the lady who's sleeping under the bridge? Where does she use the bathroom? Where does she drink water from? You know, what happens to them when it's burning hot outside, when it's 120 degrees and it gets that hot? What happens to her? Does she have shoes or slippers? What happens to her when it goes to, you know, uh, five degrees when it's super cold? Or do they have a blanket? So these questions started coming to me. Thanks to the time I spent in the U.S., which was two years of high school and four years of college. And then I was working in a company called Hubert Associates in Atlanta, which I did for a year. And so about seven years I was there, even at Hewitt. Every week, we would, for a couple of hours, get kids from the inner city schools and we would read to them stories about self-belief, stories about gratitude, stories about compassion. We would teach them maths. This would be sixth and seventh grader who would come to the corporate office and we would feed them. So I was about 22 years old and I started noticing these things. And I was like, man, you know, I'm wasting my life. What the hell am I doing following, you know, money, power and fame? 
or you know following the herd mentality i need to do something right here and india has got 770 million people below the age of 35 i'm like sure as hell you could be a billionaire son or you could be a handicapped person or you could be someone whose father just makes 5 dollars a day or you could be a doctor or you could be a lawyer a politician a celebrity anyone could give 2 hours a week and with that intention i realized that kindness is contagious and we mobilized almost john 150000 volunteers in as little as 6 to 7 years of starting this movement and to be honest my parents for the first 6 months they were completely against it really yeah they were like your brother's going to graduate from harvard business school he'll drive a ferrari you're going to make no money you will probably ride a bicycle and i was like perfect you know i'll have a bike i'll be fit and healthy and ferrari is going to be in the house anyway so i can have best of both the worlds they were like well you know first you should make all your money and you should start giving back when you're 55 60 that's a really interesting statement you just made because i hear that somewhat frequently from people that that's the formula that's the formula that i think our culture and it's just not india i think it's in the us too be even though there is maybe a culture of of philanthropy at some level or an undercurrent i believe there is a go make your money and then live a life of purpose go go make money and then decide what you're going to do about it you you bucked that trend and you said i'm no i'm going to take a different path absolutely i remember every day for the first 6 months my family had friends so we would have like they would have me talk to the ceo of microsoft in india they would call very well the builder would be a family friend and every night i remember these different people coming and speaking to me and telling me hey buddy you know you need to kind of first uh, take care of yourself financially build a strong career and this can always happen on the side later on and i was very clear that even after 2 years of starting this i went to yale for my mba from 2006 to 2008 and i had an offer to work on wall street with jp morgan but i was very clear that i want to go back and work on the real streets because i value my time you know i feel my time is priceless and why would i spend a second doing something which i did not enjoy which would not serve which was not the purpose of my life i i had this great clarity around the age of 22 that you know the greatest joy i was getting in my life was not by money power or fame but was doing good for someone you know be it they give their money or be it they give their time whenever they were simply giving that's what made me the happiest and i wanted to make a platform for lots of people to join in and serve what would you say to somebody who's maybe where you were earlier in their life and they are just now starting to sort out career and and giving and and balance and all these because these are complicated things these aren't things that are easy to to handle and i don't hear you saying everybody needs to go do what you did i i don't hear you saying that but i do clearly hear you say that at some point in your life you had this what a friend of mine refers to as you can't not do this is something you had to go do you were going to go do this and not everybody has that calling if you will but i do believe there are people that have clearer callings in their life that they either ignore or they just choose not to look at for whatever reason but wh- what encouragement would you give to maybe people that are in that front end of their career or maybe they're in their career and they're just stuck do you have any thoughts as to 
if they see something that's meaningful to them, how did you actually make that step? Because gravity almost keeps you from making those steps. Financial security keeps you from taking those steps in a lot of cases. So can, can you give any perspective there? Yeah. And, and John, you put it very well. You know, we need all kinds of people. We need people who are going to devote their life to not-for-profit. We need doctors. We need lawyers. We need incredibly brilliant authors like you who can teach people how to live a more meaningful life. We need philanthropists. We need all kinds of politicians. And I think each one plays their role. But I think just because we are born as a human being, at the end of the day, each one of us, if you ask the question, why enough time, then why do you do this? The answer is going to be for happiness. You know, people say, well, why do you want to go to study at Ivy League? Well, so that I feel happy that I get the best education. Well, what are you going to do with the best education? Well, I'll probably get a great job or start a great business. What will you do with that? Well, I'll be able to make a lot of money. Well, what are you going to be a lot of money? I'll have some of the best things that the money can buy. Why? Happiness. What will you do when you get the best things that the money can buy? So again, the answer is going to be for happiness. So everything we do, I feel as a human being, we are seeking happiness, right? Even people of faith, uh, if you ask them, why do they go to church or a place of worship? Where are they going? And it is to get that fulfillment and joy and happiness. And I truly believe that for a constant state of happiness, uh, I think living is giving. No matter what culture, what religion do you, do you follow? I think just because we are born as a human being, I think the universe made a simple law that living is giving. And if you do that, and when I say living is giving, John, I'm not talking about just writing checks because I've seen some of the biggest billionaires who are writing checks left, right, and center, but who are highly depressed. I'm sure you've met some of them as well who would write tons and tons of checks but aren't happy in their life. I'm talking about... Mm -hmm giving your your time as well. I think that is a lot more important. Sharing your gifts, sharing your thoughts, sharing your ideas, encouraging others. I think that is equally important. And I think that helps you when you start volunteering. It helps you, um, you know, become a better leader, communicate better if you're volunteering with children. Uh, it helps you, gives you management skills because you'll probably be working with other volunteers who you are leading. Raising funds uh, for not-for-profits is not too far away from raising funds for your own business. So it just helps you in your other skills. So I'm saying simply give a portion of your time and it'll lead to a happier, richer, more compassionate life, no matter what it is that you're doing. Amen to that. That's all, all of that. That's all. all that. That's all. All of that. Yeah, boy, you're preaching it. <laughs> so you won this thing called the Ellis Island Award, which is no small feat and is a really big deal. Can you can you tell everybody a little bit more about that award? Because that that's that's just a really really cool thing. I think it was a wonderful blessing uh, from the universe. So Ellis Island Award is one of the highest humanitarian awards given to American citizens. It is one of the few awards that goes in the congressional records. It is recognized by the House of Senate and House of Representatives. It is given at the Statue of Liberty, and it is given for humanitarian efforts. Previous winners have been presidents like Bill Clinton, George Bush, Jimmy Carter, global CEOs like Jeannie Rometty of IBM, Ajay Banga of MasterCard, CEO of Coca-Cola, 
golfer Arnold Palmer, the boxer Muhammad Ali, Michael Douglas. Every year, they will give it to one or two internationals for the incredible American values that they're spreading in their country. And Malala, who won the Nobel Prize, had won it a couple of years ago. And tons of Nobel Prize winners have, have won it in the past. And I'm honored and delighted to say that for my work for the poorest of poor children in India, I won it on May 11th, at, uh, 2019, at the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it was an honor to be with some of the greatest American humanitarians from all walks of life. So I'm extremely grateful to the American people. And this has actually opened up a huge door for me to get more support and help build a lot more schools across India and empower millions and millions. So that is what it was, my friend. Well, congratulations. And, and what a perfect candidate to select. As we wrap up a little bit, I talk about this idea of living fully, which is an interesting concept that wraps up a lot of things in our life and ultimately, I believe, is leading us to this idea of our lives flourishing and our lives being meaningful and purposeful and all the things that you and I you know, love to talk about and I've so enjoyed talking with you about. But as you think about living fully for your own life at this stage of your life right now, how would you define that for yourself so that people might have a sense of the inner workings of Amitabh? How, how would you and your wife describe living fully right now? Uh, that, that's a beautiful question. I, I really feel that I was lucky at a young age to brainwash myself with gratitude. So my wife and I, we truly believe that gratitude is the mother of all values. And if we can see the good in every situation, then they can truly live fully, you know? And we started writing down 10 things that we are grateful for every night. And I think it's been close to four years that we have done it. So we would write down things like, thank you, God, for giving me feet so I can walk everywhere. Thank you for my ears. Thank you that I had an awesome pizza this afternoon. Thank you that I, uh, I mean, thank you that I could have this, uh, this you know, beautiful podcast. <laughs> thank you. For the air I breathe, thank you for the sun that comes out every morning. Thank you for the million dollars in checks that came in, which would help, you know, transform 100 schools. Thank you for, you know, days when I can't find out something big. I would say thank you for a cell phone. I press a button and I talk to anyone in the world. Thank you for internet. I can do this podcast or email anyone in a second or, you know, talk to anyone anywhere. So I think when you brainwash yourself with gratitude, I think it truly helps you live fully. So we've got thousands and thousands of things to be grateful for. So it's very difficult, very difficult to be angry or unhappy for maybe more than 10 seconds. So <laughs> I love that. Brainwashing yourself with gratitude. Yes. What a great, great statement. <laughs> That's something worthy of brainwashing yourself with. But anyways, well, I so appreciate having you on the show there's just gobs of stuff here that you and I could talk about. I know we're talking about getting together, maybe even in India, which will be phenomenal for me to see that. And I'm looking forward. I'll report back, obviously, to the show and listeners about what I see and hear there. But if people want to learn more about you, you've unstoppable. Some of the videos you sent me, by the way, were unbelievable the work you're doing and all that, but how would people get a better sense of that if they want to get involved, want to meet you, want to 
get, you know, be a part of effectively this, this movement that you have, what's the best way to do that? I think the best way to do that would be for them to send me an email and my office will connect them appropriately. So it is Amitabh, A-M-I-T-A-B-H, S-H-A-H, Shah, at gmail.com. You can send me an email. Uh, and absolutely, John, I think having someone like you come and share the wisdom from your book to the high net worth individuals in India, teaching them how to give in a better way, teaching them how to be happier in life, teaching them how to have a better work-life balance. We invite you. I think it is going to be one of the most adventurous, meaningful, and fun trips of your life. So would love to have you invite your wife. Join us and spread the wisdom of your book. And everyone listening to this, make sure you get the book. <laughs> well, thank you. Awfully nice. Thanks again, Amitabh, for joining me on the show. It's just been a real pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you so much, John. Lots of love. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Amitabh Shah. It's so easy to fall into the mindset that we should make a big pile of money and then go change the world, or at least impact the world. Instead, Amitabh reminds us that we can leverage the resources, the talent, and time that we do have to make a difference today. And even if that's just in small, incremental investments of our time and our resources, and in a lot of cases, that's where it starts. If you'd like to know more about how to live a truly wealthy life, check out my new book, The Wealth Creator's Playbook, which is available now on Amazon. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends about the show and leave us a review wherever you listen. It's always great to hear your thoughts. You can also reach me with questions and comments through social media at JC Christensen or over email at john at jcchristensen.com. Thanks again for tuning in and go live fully. Wealth Confidant is produced by Anna McLean and Target Marketing Digital. Our theme song is Day is Gonna Come by Royal Deluxe.